from a fixing mindset to a healing mindset and a reconnection has totally changed the way also that I approach the injustices and the hurts of the world around me, as well as my own. Hi, friends. I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. I'm talking with Lindsay Medford today about her new book, My Body and Other Crumbling Empires. It's funny, I've had that book lying around my house and a couple people have walked through and said, ooh, I really like that title. And I think you'll be interested in what it means, My Body and Other Crumbling Empires. But I'll tell you this, it is a book about healing, both physical and social healing. And what was really cool to me about this conversation is that in talking about healing, we ended up talking about slowing down. And we ended up talking about technology and how we use our phones and about paying attention. And we also talked about food banks and capitalism and all of these different ideas which might seem unrelated, but are really related to the topic of healing. So I think you'll enjoy the ways in which this conversation goes in directions that might be unexpected and yet also feel really linked to what it means um, to pay attention to who we are and to our world in a way that brings healing. One note I should mention for about the first half of the interview, you will hear some birds in the background. And I'm just going to say, I hope that they help you welcome the signs of spring and that they are not a big distraction. So here is my conversation with Lindsay Medford. Well, I'm here today with Lindsay Medford. Lindsay is the author of a new book, My Body and Other Crumbling Empires, Lessons for Healing in a World that is Sick. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And tell us where you are coming from. I don't know if listeners are going to be able to hear the birds chirping in the background, (laughs) but for anyone who's like me in Connecticut, there might not be open doors or windows and birds chirping in the background. So tell us where you're coming from. I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we just moved here. That was a particularly loud bird. Um, Yeah, so it's just gotten warm enough to leave the doors open. So, of course, we're doing that at all times. (laughs) Well, enjoy it. Um, We will get there, those of us in the Northeast, eventually. Um, All right, shifting gears to your book. (laughs) I I, I was trying to think of a way to just, you know, kind of introduce people to your story, which you tell in a really comprehensive, I think, and compelling way throughout the course of the book. But towards the end of the book, you have a line where you say that for years you have – either been told or said about yourself that your body is a prophet. And you also say, but the meaning you have behind those words has changed over the years. So I thought maybe that would be a way to introduce your story, to reflect on that concept of your body as a prophet and the way your own thinking about that has changed over the years. Yeah, that's a really fun way to start. Um, I, the most like clear and obvious and even the most when you think of a biblical prophet maybe the most clear parallel is that when I started to listen to what my body needed after I got sick and also after I spent about a year just kind of waiting for pharmaceuticals to to fix me and they kind of just made things worse um as I started to pay attention to my actual life and to what made my body feel better or worse, um, 
it was things like it was disconnection Mm. uh disconnection from uh the source of my food disconnection from my body itself there i there was a a huge shift once i switched off of hormonal birth control Mm. from treating my body as this thing to be controlled um to trying something different as far as that went um even I feel a lot better when I am feel connected with my family and friends, and there's a lot of scientific and biological reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more I dug into the many aspects of my life that were contributing to my body's overload yeah. and my original chronic illness, the more I was finding my body speaking about what is not right in this world Mm -hmm. ultimately um because those were those were my personal choices but they were also things that we are uh those were the normal things to do um these aspects of disconnection that i was experiencing and so not only was my body ultimately telling me about my life but also about the world that Mm -hmm. i lived in and so that was the first way that I experienced my body as a prophet. And that was the way I started writing the book was like, um, look at these things that are making us sick. Mm. And isn't this, isn't this an outrage? Which it is. Um, but I also, as I have continued to learn how to live with autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. and as I have spent more and more time and made more and more relationships in different social justice and activism spaces, Mm -hmm. I have found my body also telling me not just about what needs to change, but about how we go about making that change. And specifically, that we are conditioned to try and fix things especially i would say white middle or higher class people are really conditioned to like set goals and go after them and form a committee and uh, make a project management board and set a deadline and fix a problem and when we find out or encounter injustice our immediate all we kind of have to bring to the situation sometimes is that attitude of like well let's get to it and uh hopefully we'll be down here in a year or two right <laughs> and um that fixing attitude did not work for my body mm. as i said before and it doesn't work we're trying so hard to be effective but it's really ineffective at countering the forces of empire that we are uh, trying to subvert here. Mm -hmm. And so moving from a fixing mindset to a healing mindset and a reconnection Mm -hmm. uh, has totally changed the way also that I approach the injustices and the hearts of the world around me as well as my own. 
Can you say a little bit more about both of those in terms of the shift from fixing to healing and what that actually looked like in your experience? Of course, yeah. I mean, and this is also something that I have learned from other people. Of course, I think a lot of people have their own stories of this. Um, Anybody that has healed from any sort of uh, mental illness or trauma, I think, has been through the same thing where you show up and... Um, often we also like to sort of outsource this, like the medical industry and other things have conditioned us to be like, uh, excuse me, I am broken and your job is to fix me. Right. And then we show up and actually it's, uh, our job to participate, even if, you know, even if obviously most of us need some sort of professional help mm-hmm. to achieve our goals, but it's our job to participate and that healing process is really long, and that healing process is often painful mm-hmm. and ugly. Um, we like healing is this just this beautiful word, <laughs> and it's in the practice. It's just rarely the beauty is comes in these like incredibly surprising moments mm-hmm. out of uh, like a lot of muck and confusion often usually in my experience yeah (laughs) and so there's just so much more to it um so that's on a personal level and then on a wider societal scale we have learned really specific again like these very specific tools and very specific avenues like often if there's a problem we're like okay so who is writing the legislation that's going to make this go away and like how do i how do we design a campaign over the next one year to make that legislation fix the thing um which that's a fantastic tool that we need and it's not an effective tool if we are not uh learning about and then working towards changing the underlying issues for a lot of these things. Um, if we talk about climate change, if we talk about systemic racism, if we talk about uh, ableism, these are all things that you can and sh- we should pass legislation about, do a training at work about, <laughs> um, whatever sort of low-hanging fruit mm-hmm. tools we immediately reach for but then there is also so much underlying in the same way that autoimmune disease is very hard to describe it's very hard to um, understand it's and it's not always it's rarely very simple to just be like well here's the problem and this molecule or this surgery can fix it it's a it's a ecosystem the body is an ecosystem and the autoimmune disease is a really good example of how different pieces and parts interact even even the mind the body and the soul yeah and the wider social our neighborhoods and our social interactions all contribute to this thing in ways that are just really hard to measure and define but clearly there um we have the same we also struggle to grasp 
and and to stay with the com- the complexity of some of these other issues that I just described uh, on that on that wider level, but there is there are so many pieces so many pieces to pay attention to and so many levels to pay attention to so if we have legislation and it's making better rules for disabled people we also have a cultural piece that someone needs to be responsible for in helping each other understand what those rules are for and who they're for and why they're good for everyone and then we have maybe an economic piece where we need to, even if something, even if the rules make a building more accessible, is poverty kind of undercutting that because most disabled people live in poverty? Um, we have an interpersonal piece where we've been taught just inappropriate things about disabilities and disabled people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I accessibility also means that we're unlearning the ableism within ourselves. And so to me, all of that is what healing is Mm. because healing is when we're reconnecting these things that have been disconnected and broken because disconnection ultimately is profitable to empire. When we feel that we're alone, when we feel that everything is too much for us to understand and someone else is going to have to come in and fix it for us. Uh, that's when we go along with the way things are, the mm-hmm. status quo. And intentional or not, it's really profitable for us, for others, for us to stay that way. Yeah, it's so interesting, that kind of passive... Um posture of mm-hmm. well it's it's interesting because it's like there are two options within a certain framework right there's either the passive i can't do anything and i just need a doctor or the system to fix me then mm-hmm. there's also the the only answer is an action right like a decisive action right now and what you're describing mm-hmm. is something actually that is neither of those in the sense that it's like participatory so there is some measure of activity and passivity when we are participating and it's holistic and it's long. Like it, it just is, it's, <laughs> and that tends to feel slow to us. I'm not sure that it is slow, but it is um, within our current uh, world and ecosystem, which is so fast paced and immediate. That yeah. sense of the time that it takes, whether that's to heal um, a body, to heal a relationship, to heal a culture um, is going to, I think, feel slow to us. And that kind of leads me to asking, and I know, again, this is there. there's a mapping that you do throughout the book where you've got your personal story within your body, as well as this wider story, both of COVID and the pandemic, mm-hmm. but even, again, beyond that of um, various just... Uh, social ills, whether that's the epidemics of chronic illness or of um, racism and injustices. So we've got all of that going on. Mm -hmm. This is honing back in on you um, and your particular illness. Although again, I recognize this is always kind of in conversation with these other themes. And this is, you wrote, um, my autoimmune disease may have been a genetic fluke, but it was also a classic case of burnout. 
And I wanted to ask you to explain what you mean by that, like just for, you know, listeners who haven't read your book and don't know those details. Um, But then I also just want to talk about that relationship between connecting illness or pain to exhaustion and stress without blaming, shaming, you know, kind of guilt, (laughs) putting yourself in this position of like, it's all my fault. So we can get back to that part of the question. So can you start with um, just explaining what does it mean to have a genetic fluke that also is a classic case of burnout? And what did that look like in your life? Oh, yeah. Well, to be very specific, um, many different chronic illnesses and particularly autoimmune illnesses are can be you can have the gene for it and i'm not a geneticist i don't know exactly what this means but the gene does not switch on until mm-hmm. your body reaches a certain point of overload um, a lot of people develop these after having a virus which may be part of what's contributing to the long covid issues um where the the virus really overwhelms their system a mm-hmm. lot of tons of people develop autoimmune problems after this, any uh, physical or emotional or spiritual trauma Mm -hmm. in their lives. Um, And so I actually did not have a trauma or a virus, but, and I think this does answer the second part of your question. I was just living my like normal 26 year old life, which meant I went to grad school and I had a full course load and I took out, I was like terrified of loans and too proud to even consider them. So the point being, I had a full course load and a part-time job catering on my feet in the middle of the night to pay my bills. Yeah. And then after that, after I graduated, I was, the year I got sick, in particular, I was applying to PhD programs, mm. working full time. I got married. I moved across the country. I got to a place where we didn't know anybody at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, a place I'd never been until they like came there in the moving truck, oh and gosh. then uh, we also we got a puppy, and then. All of a sudden, I was sick. (laughs) And I didn't, I wouldn't even say that I felt burnt out. I was just doing what you do. Right. And it turns out that that was too much Mm -hmm. without, without a lot of other supports in place that I had never really considered myself to need. (laughs) Yeah. And, um... Eventually, it took me so long to, like, dis- disengage from this really intense attitude of overloading myself on every level. Um, super perfectionist, mm-hmm. super ambitious in my own way. And it took me so long of being sick to finally admit that I just could not live that way. Yeah. No matter how much I might want to or think I was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, to where, you know, it's six, seven years later and I can look back at that and be like, no one should be expected to just handle all of that. And no one should be surprised if 
it's too much for their body just to be constantly moving and under those and under those emotional stresses as well um but at the time it like again it just felt so normal and so from so many angles for like that perfectionist angle and this sort of middle class white suburban capitalist uh idea of what my life and my career were supposed to look like um and also like not incidentally from a church angle Mm. of what I sort of like owed the world or the ways like what how much is enough serving and giving uh, especially as a woman (laughs) all of these things had me continually overloading my schedule and my life um so burnt, burn, I think when we talk about burnout, I've almost started to shy away from talking about burnout because it does start to have this connotation of like an individual problem or mm-hmm. um, probably if you do enough yoga, then you can forestall it indefinitely when there's the this, I think burnout is actually usually a symptom of that same disconnection where we where the world around us teaches us to be so busy to be so um ambitious and so self-reliant that we are trying to do all of this without the supports that our bodies and our our souls as humans are designed to need. I'm thinking about two aspects of what you said. One that even like that framing of guilt over the fact that the reason I'm sick is because I was exhausted, right? Like that Mm -hmm. framing is an indication in and of itself of the problem, right? Like, Yeah, it is. And so, and yet it is also one that I have certainly seen in myself. And I, I feel it when like I have friends who are experiencing sciatica or who have gotten sick for the third time just because there's been like a series of different illnesses. Or, I mean, I can, you know, we can name, you've named long COVID. We can talk about other, all sorts of, um, conditions, diseases, etc., where one seemingly compassionate narrative can be, well, you did X, Y, and Z, and that hurt your body. And again, there can be some wisdom in saying, what would it mean for me to slow down and to get the support I need? But even the way that we frame it sometimes is, well, if only you got your act together, then you wouldn't be so sick, right? <laughs> like, yes. And and so I'm I really appreciated you spent, I think, a lot of the book wrestling in that place of like, could it really be God's calling on my life for me to lie here? Like, is that <laughs> even possible that resting could be God's call on my life? I'm supposed to go change the world, aren't I? You know, and I just appreciated that. And I wonder, um, having come through these years of really rebalancing and reconnecting and you now are at a place it sounds like where you know if x y and z happens i'm gonna get sick 
And so I both have some, there's again, some passive, this is just true of me in a way that it might not be for the next person. And there's an active. And so do I really believe enough in the integrity of who I am and the value that I have as a human to take care of myself and to do what needs to be done for that to happen? And again, you're in a position of agency um, as I am to be able to make those choices. And that's a whole other question. Um, But yeah, I just wondered if you could speak to that reframing in terms of how to not see your disease as your fault and yet also to see the agency that you have in caring for yourself as like a preventative measure. Sure. Yeah, I I think I especially always have this tension at the front of my mind because so many of my friends are parents and I'm not a parent yet. Mm. And so just in that way, even apart from any other social location issues, I have a lot of autonomy over my time and my energy that other people don't. And so, yeah, there. I think we're all moving often through different like ratios of agency and not more like more of the acceptance side or or the like major asking for help side at least um but yeah i think this is really important um two things to, to keep together when often People, our default is to separate them for some reason. Um, And I think we get into conversations where you have to choose one or the other. Mm -hmm. Or if you say, I think I've been really conscious of the way that the like wellness culture puts things on people to Mm -hmm. where I I am sometimes hesitant to say, well, then I did this and I felt better. Yes. (laughs) Just because then to some people that implies it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, If you don't get better, it's your fault, which is a horrible, Mm -hmm. (laughs) horrible way to feel or thing to say, which we do say to people. Um, And I think in so many situations, we are having to, to process both of these at the same time. Yeah. I think of any... Any situation where something can be not your fault, either your family passed this habit down to you or the world around you traumatized you in some way or any number of other reasons that something can be not our fault, but still our responsibility. Yeah. And ultimately also our responsibility to forgive ourselves. Um. And I really appreciate you asking this question because I don't, I really resist having to make it one or the other. Yeah. And then the other, it also doesn't serve us well to force ourselves or each other to pick a side because I think we are often moving through different seasons where we have more or less agency or um 
forces outside our control acting yeah. upon us. Um, yeah, that makes a lot so, of sense. Yeah, being able to hold both of those together and to let them be what they are feels like a really important skill for continuing to navigate through whatever comes next when things are unpredictable as they super are when you have a chronic illness. Well, and I'm thinking about, I feel like we've got kind of this medical model of a fix coming in from the outside and it works or it doesn't, but that's what you've got. You've got medication or surgery Mm -hmm. or a self-help model, which is you've got, um, you know, particular diets or yoga practices or mindfulness (laughs) and meditation or whatever. Um, And there's some, can be some truth in both of those. Like it's not as though I think you in any way are saying be dismissive of, of any of those things. And yet there's like, there's a third way that is actually, first of all, much bigger than the self because so much of what you write about is the ways in which we need to be not just connecting our, within ourselves, mind, body, spirit, but actually within our communities. Uh, but there's also just a cultural norm of pushing and striving that essentially for your health, and I think this is true beyond people who actually have autoimmune diseases, right? Um, yeah. There's a, yes. a need for, for us to become a healthier society. That pushing and striving would also need to be really challenged. And I was, um, this was a another place, you had two quotations that I uh, underlined. So one was, we're taught from our early years on that we should fear self-indulgence more than self-destruction. I mean, I literally was like, oh my gosh, that articulates my early life, like teenager years in particular, that mm-hmm. I feared self-indulgence. And I essentially did not fear self-destruction because that's what I was doing to myself. And then this is, I think, a similar thought, um, which is in a different chapter, but you wrote, I needed my stress to prove that I was doing the best I could. And so I just wanted to explore that a little bit, that idea of like stress serving a need and self-destruction serving a need um, to prove ourselves in our culture. And again, like how how were you able to rethink or undo some of that, uh, some of those messages? Yeah, I think this baby, this was part of my forgiving myself. Mm. Baby was to be like, well, there was some reason I kept doing that and there was some reason I thought that was normal or good and some reason it was so hard to let go of like this running on adrenaline like it did not feel good objectively I just didn't know another way you know um and you know to not to be too I it's like it's just capitalism (laughs) (laughs) and i think specifically in my like i mentioned my like upper middle class white suburban context we have this need uh culturally in that context to justify why we deserve what we have Mm. and so people we do like we put these expectations on our like 12 and 13 year old children on up Mm. of overachieving yeah 
of kind of learning these skills of managing projects and having committees, <laughs> uh, of going to the right college. And even though I wasn't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't on Wall Street doing finance, I had gone to Christian college and learned, like you said, to, to, that I was supposed to be changing the world. And so mm -hmm. I was applying that same, like, overambitious, overworking ethos to my own belief that I was, that social justice meant, frankly, burning yourself out on behalf of, like, these vague ideals often. Mm. <laughs> um, or that social justice meant that because other people lived in poverty and had no choice but to be burned out by their circumstances that, you know, I couldn't rest until everyone else could, which um, is simply not realistic. Yeah. But for some reason, like, my religious culture didn't deal much in that realism, right? Anyway, um, so for me, that was where the what needs those things we're serving yeah um i think we could i think that like cultural piece of what the what our culture needs in order to maintain basically to maintain injustices that we know aren't right but that we like don't want to have to deal with out in the suburbs in their like cushy school districts and everything um i think we could go a lot deeper with that but um what was the second part of the question? Well, as I, mean, I almost started there. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Like, in what ways were the, was the stress serving you? But also, how have you been able to rethink that um, so that you're not just perpetually going back to that place? Like, kind of getting back on the treadmill or going back to the place of overwork um, and mm -hmm. thinking in those terms? Well, that's the really important part to me, actually, is... Um, once I start the once I realized started to realize where this was coming from and like how much more of this was about sort of um ultimately about like maybe justifying myself or um proving to God or like the whole entire world that I was doing enough. Um and and being able to see where the roots of that were in capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy and ableism, then I could say, okay, well, if I want to live in a world or help to build a world that I may never see without capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy, then like those patterns are just not available to me anymore. Mm-hmm. Those things are off the table. They they seem like I I think I said this before, but like overworking and um, blasting really hard towards a goal can can feel like it's efficient and effective, but it often leads us to solutions that are kind of patchwork and easily undone. Mm because they don't have that support around them of all the other dimensions of healing that are necessary. And so when I realized like burnout is built into all the things that I was trying to struggle against, 
uh, using things up and using people up is sort of the ultimate goal of colonialism and capitalism. We're not just burning each other out, we're burning the planet out. Mm -hmm. It was like, wow, <laughs> maybe the one of the most urgent things we can do is actually to rediscover slowness. Right. Maybe, maybe one of the most like truly radical things I can do as a privileged person is to learn to sit and wait and listen long enough to see where there are resources and um, beautiful things to be found where I've been trained to only see, you know, desolation and emptiness. Maybe if I don't want to live in a world where we blame people for their problems, whether they, it is from a personal scale to the wider scale where we excuse our policies by saying that disabled people shouldn't be disabled or poor people shouldn't be poor. Mm -hmm. If I want to live in a world where we don't do that, I have to, I really have to start by not doing that to myself. Mm -hmm. And then I have to think about what it looks like to live a life that sends a different message to everyone around me as well. Well, and that kind of brings me to like, we've talked a lot about illness and um, you know, the ways in which we are, breaking our bodies and our culture and um, destroying things. But you also do a really wonderful job, I think, in your book of insisting that our bodies don't simply mess offer messages of pain and illness, but yes. about learning to be attentive. Uh, this is a, a list you have in there to joy, laughter, liberation, and peace. So I'd love to hear you speak about that. What does it mean not simply to pay attention when our bodies signal dis-ease, but mm -hmm. also to learn how to pay attention to when our bodies signal that, yeah, there's joy and peace and liberation available. Yeah, I do think that is actually, it's one of those things that people say is really hard and you're like, is that, are we just making that up because it sounds nice or whatever? <laughs> I think it is really hard to pay attention to our body's messages of joy and liberation and peace. Mm -hmm. I think as much as we are taught to dismiss our pain and um, assume that we're just like our bodies are just being quirky or whatever and not actually trying to tell us a real message, we feel that much more that way about the times when we are just like, this is nice or I feel like myself or I feel connected to this person around me in a way that makes me really feel at home. Or I am so glad that I worked through that hard thing to get to where I am now with this community or my family mm -hmm. or with myself or with God. Um, these, are, these are visceral feelings often. Um, contentment. Even, I mean, I really... To bring it to like a really basic example, we struggle so much to both to heed our hunger 
and to understand our feelings of satisfaction mm-hmm. and our our um, not just feelings of satisfaction, but even to taste what tastes good to us. And that continues to translate even more into these sort of more amorphous feelings of being moving from out of fight or flight, for instance, or of feeling connected. There's a lot of science I don't fully understand in the field of interpersonal neurobiology that talks about how we like really truly need each other to do what we're supposed to be doing as human beings like physically and in society but then we go we realize it's been like three weeks since we had much of a real conversation with anybody because it's like this world is not built for that (laughs) but we it's so hard to be like i'm lonely or or to and so much harder to be like i had a wonderful evening with a friend on my front porch Mm -hmm. and that says something to me about how the world needs to be and about what my priority like what is a legitimate priority in my life Mm. um well there is a i don't know that just i'm just thinking about that um the what you were saying about slowness and the way in which mm -hmm. slowness can allow us to pay attention that, I mean, right. one of, like, even just literally, if you are watching something that's moving really quickly, it is harder to pay attention to the details because it's just moving too quickly. And I think that's true yeah. about our lives as well. And so on the one hand, there's the paying attention on the pain side of things. But as you're also saying, the paying attention to the joy and just, it's so sad to think about how much we might miss in the almost inability to pay attention because of moving so quickly. But one Mm -hmm. of the, I'm curious to hear from you if you've had any practices that have helped you in this. For me, uh, and listeners might've heard me talk about this before, but um, the Ignatian examine, like the idea of literally reviewing the day and asking the question of when there was a moment of consolation, you know, of joy or peace or mm-hmm. connection and a moment of desolation of really feeling um, desolate, uh, absent from connection with myself or with God or with others. That's been really helpful to me in exactly what you're saying and being like, oh, like my cup of tea in the morning truly brings me <laughs> delight. Like it really does. I I'm almost giddy about it. And I'm not sure I would have noticed that if I hadn't started paying attention. And that's a really mundane example. And yet there is also that sense of just kind of honoring what we've been given in ourselves, in our bodies, in our world um, that has come from that. So, yeah, I'm curious whether there are other practices that you have in your daily life of um, of paying attention, either on the paying attention to um pain or illness or paying attention to joy and connection? Um, I, one of my like nerdy side interests is learning about how technology, but smartphones and the internet in particular sort of uh, change our brains, change the way we think, all of this stuff. Um, So fascinating 
And I think maybe because of that research I have done over the years in particular, I pay a lot of attention to how I feel when I'm on my computer or my phone, Mm. Um, which is (laughs) partly because like the people who design these websites, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. They like bring people into rooms and sit them down and track their eye movements and their breathing rates and like their body language to find out how these things are making them feel. But they're also designed to kind of mask from us how we are actually feeling. Mm. Um, They're really effective for doing a lot of things, but they're also really effective for like just numbing out from the world. Mm. Um, And so paying a lot of attention both to how I feel when I am on my phone and when I am off my phone is like a ongoing thing for me that feels I I do think I have learned so much about the internet and the ways we interact um just from that practice well and I'm curious what does that actually look like like how do you pay attention to that do you like make sure that once a day you ask yourself that question do you are you now conscious of it enough that you're actually thinking about it in the moment like what is paying attention actually What shape does that take? Yeah, I do. It is like a like a habit for me now. One thing that really has helped me do this. I don't even know if everyone won't feel helped by it because it's not always doesn't always feel good. (laughs) Um, But I learned that most people like when we click on an email, we hold our breath. Because we don't know what's coming or wow. um, we're sort of just sort of hoping for a certain rush yeah. or something or feeling stressed. Um, and I started noticing that with other things besides just email. Hmm. Um, and I started practicing what does it feel like to sort of breathe slowly and then open Gmail and then try to take this all in from a more centered space it is really hard it's just a lot to be taking in yeah and we're holding our breath because we're overloaded by it right and um i still don't always know what to do with about that at all yeah. and i still when i'm sitting on my couch and i'm like man i'm really tired i just grab my phone without thinking about it and like there goes 30 minutes right <laughs> um so it's so hard it's it's very illustrative of these things that we can be aware of and and do our very best um to live like counter to what we're what other people are trying to form us as and then also it's gonna still be an ongoing struggle i the other thing i will also say i think um spending time in like food pantries and soup kitchens and stuff just forces you to pay attention hmm. to the good and the bad yeah on a on a different yeah. level um and even some days uh some days are like this is amazing this is the kingdom of god this is like Everything I was ever told Mm. would be wonderful about doing justice. And then some days you're like, 
I don't know why I ever started this and I don't know if I can keep going and why do I think this is worth it at all? And when when your heart is just broken or someone that you love has either, you know, either betrayed you or anyway, those days are also days that teach me to pay attention to the good actually. Yeah. Um, it makes sense to me. I remember um, I was talking, I was at Yale Divinity School talking to students. Mm-hmm. And um, although they're at Divinity School, they're also on the same kind of treadmill that we're talking about in terms of yeah. overwork and um, proving yourself through your work. And one of the students there was like, okay, I so don't want to stay in this place, but how, like, how do I do it? And what came to me at the time, which I think is really related to what we're talking about here, was there's an internal practice of contemplation, like whether that's what I was talking about with the examine or just literally being like, I'm going to sit in the love of God. Like that's all I'm going to do for five minutes, for 10 minutes, the breathing deeply that you are describing, like some sort of inner contemplative practice that just slows us down and gets us more connected, even in these like momentary ways. But then also an external practice of um, regular proximity to people who are not operating, whether because of choice or not, on the treadmill, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and just that, those two things, I think that internal and that external will get us more connected both to the pain of life and to the joy of life, right? And and to the that abundance that goes in both of those directions. So when you were speaking about that, you know, it's such an interesting pairing you just made between breathing before opening email and going to a food kitchen, a soup kitchen or a food bank, right? And yet I think they're really related to this concept of living in a way that honors health and wholeness um, that goes beyond, yeah, quick fixes or um, individual self-help methods also. Yeah, well, I, and people people love to be like, attention, mindfulness, it's the answer. To Part of it is not just like, I'm an attentive person and I feel good about myself that way. It's It's also paying attention to me shows me like more reality that's the point and whether when i am paying attention to how i feel when i'm opening my email when i'm paying attention to how i feel when i put the phone down and go outside or be bored or make a cake uh i'm learning that my perception of what is like productive or what will like raise my amount of status or happiness in the world or and what is like efficient in the literal terms of how I'm spending my time Mm. uh my perception of that when I'm not paying attention is just not true uh like slowing down doing fewer things is usually much more efficient and we like we all know that person that like answers every email three seconds after you they get it and they don't read the original email and then they just created more work for everybody but they feel like they are doing their job really fast and really good (laughs) um we are i think we're all in that place a little bit uh 
with a lot of things usually. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same. The same reality presents itself. Spending time, like you said, with people who cannot or will not be on that same treadmill. Yeah. Um, the reality opens itself up that, that, first of all, that there is more to life. And second of all, that the the way to where we want to go in this, like, efficient, productive manner, it might, the path just might surprise us. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think it might sum up what uh, you've offered here today in a pretty beautiful way, because again, the idea of a path that we are perhaps walking and not, you know, um, airborne along in traveling super, super fast, but like a, a slow <laughs> path of, mm-hmm. of having to notice and maybe taking some wrong turns and maybe having some pain along the way and maybe having some beauty as well um, just seems to really speak to a lot of what you've offered in this book and also in this conversation as far as uh, a path that might return us to God and to ourselves and to one another, um, recognizing that there's not a quick fix and there's not a um, an easy solution. There's not a one, two, three. And yet there's also some real hopefulness. Like there's a real sense mm-hmm. of um, even that simplicity of saying, slow down and pay attention, start there. Um, and, and see what is almost revealed to you um, and then take the next step on that path. Yeah, yeah. And we think that we are responsible for so much, but I think that is kind of the core and the essence of our responsibility, actually. Yeah. So what is being revealed to you, mm-hmm. for you? Mm-hmm. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your book. Um, thank you for telling your story. I was really grateful for it, and I'm sure that the listeners here will be as well. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of Love is Stronger Than Fear. And I will remind you, we rely on you to spread the word about this podcast. There are no advertisements. There are no promotions here. There is just word of mouth. And that happens whenever you share it with a friend or if you give it a rating or a review that does something algorithmically that allows more sharing to happen. Um, Also, I will say, I'd love to hear from you. Please feel free. I would love to hear your responses at amyjuliabeckerwriter at gmail.com. I always want to thank Jake Hansen for editing this podcast, Amber Beery for doing everything to make sure that it happens and the show notes are all set and the transcript is up. So thank you, thank you uh, to Jake and to Amber. And thank you to you for being here. I do pray and hope as you go into your day today that you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.